What's up everybody, I'm Ed and this is Current History coming at you with another update on how Ukraine has been doing. Man, I have been nothing but impressed at how Ukraine has managed to hold up. Like, just by the numbers, I thought these guys were toast. But here we are in day four, I believe, and I don't think Russia has taken any major cities. The Ukrainian army is still fighting back, and the supplies are starting to reach them from literally everywhere else on the planet who's not a fan of this. So maybe these guys have a shot. It's still a long one, but who knows. So before I begin, we got some some quick mentions. Um, first off, if you want a great website that'll tell you exactly what's going on in Ukraine by the minute, uh, one of the websites I've been loving is LiveUAMap.com. Uh, it shows a map of all the territory controlled by both sides, as well as up-to-the-minute reports of artillery strikes, uh, attacks by Russian troops, and statements by other countries. So check that out. It's liveuamap.com. Just remember, if the website's running slow, uh, it's not that you're stuck in traffic. You are traffic, bro. <laughs> I've had to remind myself that as I'm like, why does this website take so long? It's like, yeah, because everyone else, just like me, is refreshing it a thousand times trying to get info. Um, also, if you want to connect with the Current History podcast a little more, check out my Instagram page of the same name, Current History, where I'm going to post about uh, each episode as it comes out, and you can drop a comment or give it a like or whatever. Uh, I'm also thinking of making this video or of this podcast into a video and posting it on YouTube under the exact same name yet again, Current History. Uh, so if I get that done, there will be a link in the description of this show, and uh, I'll just show, like, maps and some of the footage that doesn't have charred corpses in it, uh, but just, like, some of the video of, like, burned-out tanks and Ukrainians running through the woods. And so without further ado, let's hit a quick ad and then go into some fact checks from my last episode. Okay, so with that out of the way, let's get through some fact checks from the last episode, because we were playing it pretty fast and loose with the information. Uh, I was just laughing to myself watching like other people cover the, the same stuff, and a lot of like, well, we don't want to use any evidence that's not triple confirmed by a valid news source. Yeah, I took uh, the other approach, which was just... Whatever I can see with my own two eyes and the random caption of someone who hopefully converted it from Ukrainian. So we were we were playing it a little rough. We were going off of just kind of what we were seeing and the basic idea. But things have become a, a little bit more clear over the last four days. Uh, we're at a point now where we can understand a bit more of what's going on. And now we have less of a problem of, like, information is too chaotic, as now the information is much more propagandized. So Russia has been announcing that they have taken absolutely zero casualties, which uh, by the number of charred corpses pulled from Russian tanks as I've seen, I'm going to give a big doubt to that. I'm pretty sure there are at least a couple. Whereas Ukraine is reporting, I think, 3,500 Russian casualties plus prisoners, which obviously that is probably a high number when you're fighting a war, you overestimate the enemy's losses, it's just what you do. But I wouldn't be surprised if it is something in that range, and the Ukrainian army has requested that the Red Cross repatriate uh, Russian corpses back home so that Russia realizes just how many people are dying here. But first, let's go through a bit of fact-checking from my last episode. So, a couple of the, the claims that I made and their veracity here. Uh, tanks rolling in from Belarus, that was confirmed. They pushed from Belarus down both banks of the Dnieper River and through the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Uh, to get into Kiev. So Russia apparently has taken over the Chernobyl plant. Uh, I hope they're keeping it safe and keeping the bombs away from it because that place is still pretty friggin' dangerous. Um, so next claim uh, that it's definitely not just a war in the Donbass. That definitely seems to be true, especially since the Donbass front seems to barely be moving. 
There was a little activity in the last day or so uh, in, like, the small towns nearby, and uh, there's reports this morning of a naval invasion uh, south of Mariupol on the Donbass border. But other than that, the Donbass separatists have not been terribly involved. So I guess they were they were more of a fig leaf to try to justify the war than an actual useful fighting force. Uh, they seem to mostly be chilling while Putin swings tanks around from every other angle trying to knock out Ukraine. So to the claim that the People's Republic leaders of Donetsk and Luhansk, the two breakaway regions that Russia supports that have tried to secede from Ukraine, uh, so I made a claim that they had disappeared and been replaced with uh, more supportive figures. And so I was looking at that because I was like, oh, that seems like a bit of a generaliz- generalization. Um, so they were not so much disappeared as, at least in the Donetsk People's Republic, the first guy uh, was pushed out and arrested, and then the guy after him was killed by a car bomb. The new guy's a Russian puppet. So take that as you will. He didn't, he didn't just disappear. It was a very obvious car bombing. Then to the claim that the intelligence community has known about this invasion since last October, Uh, I was looking into a date, and it looks like November was the first time that Biden started making announcements of, like, ringing the cowbell of Russia is planning to invade Ukraine. So that's pretty, pretty far back at this point. We're talking, like, over two months ago, they first started being like, hey, uh... Russia's eyeing up its neighbor like a cartoon character eyes up a Christmas ham. So then, in my, I, in the claims from my rampant speculation section, I was very doubtful that there were paratroopers in the Kiev airport because, just from my knowledge of history, like paratroop attacks, sometimes they're very successful. They can be very useful. The problem is if you don't break through the enemy front lines and get to your paratroopers in like a, a day then your special operations troops that you drop behind enemy lines get annihilated. Which is what it looks like happened in Kiev, because... uh, So it didn't look like paratroopers as in, like, assault on Normandy dropping from a plane. Uh, It looked like paratroopers as in, like, air-inserted units from helicopters. So think more like Vietnam War uh, air cavalry, where, like... You fly in units to attack an airport, and then especially in the area around Kiev, what they were trying to do was seize the airport and then in very a short amount of time land a bunch of Russian troops at the Hostomel airport. But these Ukrainian soldiers, man, there's this great picture of, like, three dweeby teenagers, two guys and a girl, I believe, um, just in the airport with a ripped-up Ukrainian flag. Apparently, they stormed the airport when the first wave of helicopter troops landed and managed to defeat them before the planes with the 2,000 more troops landed. So it was a bit shysty there for a second, but they managed to seize the airport back before Russia could bring in their 2,000 troops, only minutes from downtown Kiev. Who knows if the city would have stood if those troops had successfully landed. So Ukraine, you have three awkward teenagers to count among your list of heroes for the reason that Kiev is still standing. Um, the other claim that of paratroopers in Odessa, I've seen nothing about, but it, it wouldn't be terribly surprising that there are, because it seems like there are air assaults going on in multiple places on multiple airfields across the country. So, and, and it seems to be a big part of where Russia's strategy here failed, was they were planning on a lightning war, a quick blitzkrieg to decapitate the Ukrainian government, take Zelensky and then lock everything down before having to get involved in a Afghanistan-style guerrilla war. That has not worked. Uh, That has only resulted in a lot of casualties, because again, that's the thing with Blitzkrieg, is it's all about breaking through enemy lines and attacking super fast. But if you mess up when attacking super fast, a lot of your troops get trapped and destroyed rather than cutting the enemy to pieces. And then on the claim by the Russian Defense Ministry that they're only using high-precision weapons to strike military targets. No civilians are being targeted. 
So that was a lie. Uh, Tons of civilian targets are being bombed. Civilian casualties are pouring in. And we seem to have gone from, like I said, the phase of this Russian invasion where they're just trying to, like, quickly decapitate the government to they're starting to realize that, like, no, they're going to have to fight the civilians. Like, they're passing out guns in the streets to ordinary people. And those ordinary people are not just giving up here. They're fighting back, which means now the Russian military has to fight door to door, house to house, and not against soldiers, against, like, civilians, against grandmas with AK-47s and 14-year-old girls volunteering and your, like, grandpa who smokes cigars on the corner. Now he's mounted up with a gun. I am proud of these people, if you haven't picked up on this. Um, So, and then as far as towns that are important, um, I mentioned Kharkiv, Mariupol, Odessa. Um, So Kharkiv being the town, or the city, right on the Russian border. Fierce defense in Kharkiv. Apparently, Ukraine has some really good divisions. Uh, They've had a lot of civilian help. So... Russia has started just bombarding the neighborhoods on the outskirts of Kharkiv, and it it seems like they're just hoping to use terror as a weapon to try and take the city without having to push in and face the rain of Molotov cocktails they're likely to meet. Uh, Then Mariupol on the south coast, I mentioned that just uh, a couple of hours before recording this, it looks like they're making a push on Mariupol, uh, including a naval invasion from the south of Ukraine. Um, I should also bring in uh, Cherniv, which is a city in the northeast that uh, was under siege. The Russia announced that it had it under siege yesterday, but don't seem to have it under siege anymore. As well as Kiev, which they were threatening as of yesterday, but Zelensky is still there and holding out. God help him. Um, then there were a couple of things, couple of claims made that I just cannot find any information on one way or the other, like an ammo dump fire in Kharkiv. There's a big fire. I can confirm that. Other than that, we got no idea. Same with, uh, MLRS attacks on the Kharkiv outskirts. Those are definitely happening, but it's hard to confirm exactly what's going on because it's just... A lot of explosions are going off in the outer neighborhoods of Kharkiv. Um, Oh yeah, I was still hesitant to say whether the Ukrainians were fighting Russian soldiers or separatist Ukrainians from the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. It is definitely not that. We are fighting the the straight-up Russian army here. Um, What else? Oh, and then to the Ukrainian claim that five planes and a helicopter had been shot down over Luhansk. I guessed that they'd used Stinger missiles against them, which are the American-supplied man-portable anti-air system. Still no idea whether it was Stingers, but it does look like planes and helicopters are getting shot down left and right, so it would not be surprising. I mentioned that Russian troops were assaulting Shastia City, but Shastia City uh, on the Donetsk and Luhansk border does still seem to be under Ukrainian control. And man, I really thought those paratroopers was BS, mainly just because, again, like the lesson from World War II is that paratroopers are a risky business. The, The Nazis had a huge failed paratroop operation to try to take the island of Cyprus, and I can't remember if they succeeded in taking the island or not i think they did eventually succeed in taking it over don't quote me on that one but um they lost tons and tons of their best special forces divisions because these paratroopers just got surrounded and annihilated before they could even get to them uh and then the the allied example of a failed paratroop mission was operation market garden which is the classic story of when they tried to take a bridge too far. They tried to use paratroopers to take like five bridges in a row and rush an armored column through. But the very last bridge, uh, despite them holding out for like two days, they weren't able to hold it long enough for the armor to move up. And so the operation ended up failing. Lots of paratroopers ended up dying. So that's where it's like paratroopers, it's a high risk strategy. Um, And then the last claim I made was that I couldn't determine whether there were air raids going on in Ukraine. 
there definitely are air raids going on, like bombs dropped from planes, but it definitely seems to be close air support rather than like strategic bombing. So close air support meaning bombing specifically to assist military targets of like someone calls in like, there's tanks ahead of me, come blow them up versus strategic bombing, which is like trying to flatten like entire cities or trying to blow up factories or whatever. The Russian strategy seems to be much more scattershot. Uh, I get the sense that they're trying to cause damage to civilian infrastructure, to cause a panic, to cause chaos, but they're going to run into some problems if they think just bombing these cities to snot is going to solve their problem. And the first lesson in that book is a little battle called Stalingrad, where the Nazis began the battle by flattening the city, and just destroying most buildings that were standing. And then they had to push their tanks into the destroyed buildings. And guess what? A leveled city is a playground for infantry attacking tanks. Like, when you can pop out of any bombed-out building, any pile of rubble, throw a Molotov, and then disappear, that's a hard fight, and that's a easy way to suck in tons and tons of infantry and resources into a huge morass that you will never get them back from. So we'll we'll see we'll see how this whole bombing cities goes for them. Um, but with that, let's get into the new information that's going been going on. So now let's dig into how this war has been going, and the first thing we gotta say is that it is obvious that the Russian offensive has not achieved its, its objectives. Um, it's very clear that Russia thought that this was going to be easier for a wide variety of reasons, starting with Russia kind of got high on their own supply with this one. That is to say that they may have believed their own propaganda a little too much. You gotta remember, the Russian propaganda line is that the Ukrainian government has been taken over by Nazis, that the Ukrainian people are yearning to be freed by Russia, that all you gotta do is kick in the door and the whole rotting structure will crumble, to quote Hitler about the Soviet Union. Um, so there's this, been this whole idea that like the Ukrainian government is a bunch of unpopular Nazis, the Ukrainian people need to be freed, and the Russian soldiers, whether they believed that or just thought that, like, okay, this is going to be a fight, but it's a fight against our small neighbor, how hard could it be? Turns out pretty, pretty difficult. Russia has committed to a lot of, like, ballistic missile attacks. They fired over 250 mostly short-range ballistic missiles into Ukraine, and Despite all of that, according to a U.S. official, Russian forces have so far failed to capture any major cities. So it seems like their strategy of surround Kiev, like cut, capture it, cut it off, and maybe hopefully capture Zelensky has completely failed. Uh, a random guy on Twitter described the Russian response to this as them getting 28-3'd by the Ukrainians, uh, which I had to look it up, I'm not a sports guy, refers to the 2017 Super Bowl when the Patriots came back from a 28-3 loss at halftime to win a sudden reversal victory. And that's kind of how it's been going for the Ukrainians. Like, I, I don't want to make any big claims that they're definitely going to win or anything like that, because... Just by the nature of a fight between David and Goliath, Goliath wins much more often, no matter how clever or smart David is. But David's been getting his licks in here. Um, as of just a bit ago, there was word that the Ukrainian military destroyed a Russian military col column near, oh, here it goes, Severodonetsk, and foiled an, an infiltration attempt in Rubizine. So these infiltration attempts, Russia has been fighting dirty as hell this whole time. Um, so they've had troops disguised in Ukrainian uniforms and with Ukrainian equipment. They've had uh, like infiltrators try to go into major cities to like cause chaos and assassinate people. And to just so distrust to make it so that the Ukrainian army feels like it's not safe behind enemy lines. 
But so far, I haven't heard any examples of this being successful. I have seen several examples of these infiltrators caught and crying with boogers running down their face by the Ukrainian army. So despite the fact that Russia is, at least on paper, a global superpower, another U.S. official said that airspace over Ukraine remains contested in contradiction to expectations before the invasion that Russia would quickly seize control of the skies. Ukrainian jets and air defense systems are active and continue to, quote, engage and deny, the U.S. official says. So there were all these reports, uh, the internet was freaking out about a so-called Ghost of Kiev, a fighter jet that had already earned the status of ace and had shot down multiple Russian planes. Uh, that's another one that like, I make no claim whether that's accurate or not. It kind of sounds like nonsense to me, but it is a target-rich environment. If Ukraine is managing to get fighters into the air and to keep them supported, then it wouldn't be surprising that they're shooting down a lot of stuff. The The bigger concern is these air defense systems, because the assumption was that Ukraine would have practically zero air defense systems set up around their cities. And from what I've seen, that has not been the case. They're, they're, it's not a ton. They're, they're not perfect. But they have been taking down a couple of Russian planes here and there. Uh, The bigger danger is these Stinger missiles that Ukraine already had a pile of and more getting shipped in every day from across NATO. Uh, These Stingers, they're what's known as man pads, which means they're man-portable air defenses. Uh, So you set it up on a little tripod, and from there, it's just point and click. And you are bringing down a multi-million dollar aircraft from the comfort of the hole you're sitting in. Ukraine's military, and again, remember that they have a vested interest in making it look like they're winning, but Ukraine's military said that Russian troops had been stopped with heavy losses near the northeastern city of Konotop. Senior U.S. defense officials warned that we're still in day four of an operation with no end in sight. It's hard to predict how it will go, given the bloody, unpredictable nature of ground combat. Quote, everybody needs to look at this with a sense of humility here. So that's where I'm going to talk a lot about the successes that Ukraine is having here. Don't take that to mean that they are guaranteed to win. They are still in a fight for their life, and they are not the ones favored just based on equipment. Um, You can have a lot of, you can win a lot of battles and still lose a war if you just don't have the men and the materials to back it up. But despite all of that, Ukraine is fighting and they're fighting back hard. Kharkiv is under control of the Ukrainian armed forces as of this morning. It looked like there were a couple of lightly armored Russian units that broke through the city center. Uh, lightly armored was apparently not the way to go because there are now no more <laughs> units in the in the center of Kharkiv. The Ukrainian armed forces reported invaders surrendering en masse, but again, who knows? At this point, it's not looking like these Russian soldiers knew exactly what they were doing and what the plan was. And meanwhile, at the top of the leadership, there's reports out that Putin was, quote, furious that the Ukrainian invasion hasn't been easy, according to one EU official citing some Ukrainian intelligence reports, which say that President Putin, unlike Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, who's out there fighting on the front lines, Putin is being a little bunker bitch hiding out in his lair in the Ural Mountains, so he's not even in the same zip code here. He's, like, directing things from a evil mountain lair a thousand miles away, where apparently he is, quote, furious and, quote, fuming that his military's invasion of the smaller country in the south is, hasn't gone more smoothly, which, yeah, it, it really isn't. Uh, it's looking like Putin's plan was that everything would be done in one to four days, and here we are on day four with not one major city taken and a couple of successful Ukrainian counteroffensives to knock them out of areas that they had taken. So then there's just been a lot of analysis of like, okay, how long can Russia keep this up? How much resources do they have to keep this attack going? And it's looking pretty bad. Word on the street is that Russia didn't have a tactical plan for if things didn't go right in the first bit that this war is costing them $20 billion a day to keep their troops in the field, and that they only have rockets for three to four days at most of fighting, 
and then they have to use them sparingly. They're running out of pretty much all weapons except for, like, rifles and ammo, which, if it comes down to a fight of just infantry to infantry, the Russians may have more, but the Ukrainians are much, much more motivated. The Russians won't have more equipment coming out until an estimated three to four months. So every piece of equipment lost is another piece of equipment that just is gone for three to four months at the very least until it can be replaced. And their factories, as it stands, at Tula and Rotenburg physically can't fulfill the order for weapons, especially because many of their resources, their raw materials that they use to make all these weapons, come from other countries like Slovenia, Finland, and Germany, and now they have been completely cut off from any supplies that could be used for military hardware. The guess is at this point that Russia's whole plan relies on panic, that the hope that by bombing civilian targets, by destroying cities and being threatening, that they can force surrender and get Zelensky to flee the country. Uh, they also were heavily counting on Kharkov, that city right on the Russian border, to surrender first so that other cities would follow suit to avoid bloodshed. <laughs> that has not been happening. As the Russians rock up to the door like, give us this city or there will be bloodshed, Ukrainians like, no, we pick bloodshed. Yours, not ours. Bring it. Yeah, uh, word is that Russians are in shock at the fierce resistance that they have encountered. So with all that information, the big question is, why are the Ukrainians doing so well? And in this context, it's important to look at just why the Ukrainians are fighting, what is motivating them. And this is a pretty good example can be seen in a poll that was recently done of Ukrainians. And it put it at 49% of all adult Ukrainians, that's one in two adults in Ukraine, say they will volunteer to fight or serve in Ukraine's armed forces if a Russian offensive happens. Only 10% were undecided, only 35% said they would not themselves volunteer. Uh, the, like, racist group in the United States, I think they're like the three percenters, they're based on this, this statistic from the American Revolution that only 3% of people took up arms to fight off their oppressors. We achieved the American Revolution, okay, by some racist idiots' estimates, with only 3% of people taking up arms. If 50% of Ukrainians are willing to take a pot shot out a window, uh, set up barricades in the streets, like, basic stuff here. They, you don't need to be Rambo. All you need to do is poison a couple of wells and shoot a couple of tires out in the middle of the night when nobody's looking. And that will be a potent fighting force. You, you cannot fight 50% of the population of a country. It, it just will not work. And with all of this resistance, imagine yourself in the position of a Russian soldier. You gotta remember, roughly a third of them are draftees, because anybody aged roughly 18 to 21 has mandatory military service, I believe. Um, and you're not told much. You're told, we're not going to war with Ukraine. That's crazy. We're doing exercises so that Ukraine and NATO don't attack us. Okay, sure. Exercises. Exercises in Belarus. And then all of a sudden, you're ordered forward into Ukraine. This is like if America was told to invade England or Australia. Like, these are people that speak a similar language, have a similar culture, and more than that, they look like you. They look like your mom. They look like your dad. They look like your grandparents. They look like your children. And when the people you're fighting look like your grandpa and your daughter, and they're fighting to the frickin' death over every scrap of territory against you— it's easy to wonder, like, Jesus, why, why am I doing this? Why am I here? And they're told, we're conducting a limited operation. We're just freeing the Ukrainians from their evil Nazi government. But these random civilians are taking up arms, and the people that aren't spitting on you are asking, what the fuck are you doing in our country? Why are you here? And you don't have a good answer. You, you thought, you, because I'm freeing you, don't you understand that? It's like, no, dude, we are free. Get out. 
there was a great clip of uh, an old Russian or an old Ukrainian man speaking in Russian to some Russian soldiers. And he had a great line of like, what, do you solve all your problems at home? Really, everything's so perfect that you figured you had to come mess around in our business? Like, go home. You're telling me that there's no problems that you could be solving somewhere else. And then, as your little Russian soldier butt is moving through Ukraine, the Ukrainian army is fighting to the death, not surrendering even when there's no point in further resistance. They're blowing themselves up to blow up bridges to make your invasion just take a little bit longer. Like, these people are willing to lay down their lives to have you not invading their country. Meanwhile, this is just a paycheck to you. This is just like some garbage that you have to do before you get to go home and become a professional Twitch streamer or whatever it is that Russian children dream of getting up to. And combined with all of this, this Ukrainian army, it's not just guys hiding in the woods with AK-47s. They have a surprising number of man-portable anti-tank and anti-air weapons. Every time you're driving through the countryside, looking around, bored as hell, a missile could come streaking out of any farmhouse and blow up a troop transport, setting the soldiers inside on fire. If you were taking a quick road trip with your buddies, how many of your buddies would have to be set on fire in front of you before you might start thinking, I don't think these people want us here. I don't think I want to be here. And with all of that, do you want to be here? How hard are you going to fight? These people are fighting for their lives. What are you fighting for? So with the Russian Blitzkrieg attacks kind of collapsing, because as I said, the, the key with Blitzkrieg is a lightning war. You have to take every objective. You have to be behind enemy lines. You have to cut so deep that their army just collapses into disarray instantly. Well, the Ukrainian army didn't collapse into disarray. They turned around and annihilated these Russian soldiers that were behind their lines. So what's the Russian strategy at this point? Um, they're shifting to, you could describe it as shock and awe, like the U.S. invasion of Iraq. You could describe it as deep battle, which was the, the Soviet doctrine in that helped them win World War II. You could also just describe it as straight up World War I. Because at this point, it seems to be like, okay, if we're not going to win through a quick decapitation, then you do the, the shock and awe thing. You pull back, and then you just bombard the snot out of them, and then roll tanks in afterwards to mop up whatever's left. Now, the problem with that strategy is when you're fighting a civilian population, the more people you piss off, the more enemy soldiers you create. And if you start committing mass atrocities on live TV, people are not going to be a fan of you. Like, Russia, my dude, if you think people are pissed off at you now, commit a couple more war crimes. Commit a couple more atrocities. See how people are feeling about you then. That's the thing is people have this idea that like, oh, if we just take the gloves off, then we'll win. If we just like because right now we're trying to limit civilian casualties. If we just took the gloves off and really bombed the snot out of them, then we'd get them. It's like, well, that's never worked. like ask the Taliban how that worked. Ask the Viet Cong how that worked. You can't bomb out civilian resistance. There will still be people there. And they still will hate you, unless you kill everyone. And if you kill everyone, more people will be against you. That's the thing with modern war. You, you can't wage it like this. It just won't work. It's like you will kill a ton of civilians, and it will just create more problems for you. Because, look, it, it's not even about sanctions. How many more sanctions can the West put on Russia that do anything? But if the Russian people begin to see these things as they already are is like no amount of censorship is bulletproof and from what i've heard there's still tiktok in russia so a lot of russian youths are getting videos straight to their phone 
of people getting killed in Ukraine of, and again, Ukraine and Russia, it's like America and England or America and Australia. Like these are people that look like them. These are people that talk like them. This is a friendly neighbor country that they have friends and cousins and relatives in. They aren't going to want to see these people getting destroyed. So that's where the question is like, what's the strategy here, guys? And apparently, like I said, it's heavy, indiscriminate MLRS rocket attacks on Kharkiv is what they're trying. They're just trying to, like, intimidate out these people. They're trying to hopefully just bomb them into submission. Maybe if we hit them with a couple more rockets, they'll just give up. But... I, I haven't seen a lot of giving up. What I have seen is the first couple of Molotov cocktails hitting Russian convoys as they drive through small towns. Uh, I saw one convoy with uh, like a troop transport set on fire by a Molotov cocktail. There was another with just like a couple of armored personnel carriers driving through a town and someone just beans them with a Molotov as they go through. Oh, it doesn't look like it stops the truck. But it's the start of civilian resistance. It's the start of random people fighting back the only way they can. And one Molotov thrown by one person is not a, is not a threat. They're having Molotov-making parties in Kiev. I, we were talking, like, a bunch of old Ukrainian grandpas sitting on a street corner bullshitting drinking in their little winter coats pouring like motor oil into beer bottles and tying rags around it people are getting ready people are preparing and the molotov is not a weapon to be messed with and in all of this the more civilian resistance there is the more the russians will bomb the more the russians will bomb the more civilian resistance there will be the more international condemnation there will be the more resistance, and in the end of the day, the more Russian casualties. All of this is just a huge, huge self-looping cycle, and the end result is going to be Russian bodies sent back home. How many they can handle before things start to crack, before things start to break, is anybody's guess. But it's not going to be zero. The bodies are coming home. And all of this updates on the war bring me to my favorite part of this update, and that is that Russia is getting diplomatically shellacked. Just on the sanctions front, um, Kiev announced just yesterday that Russia is getting kicked out of SWIFT, which is a banking transfer system. It's a way for like moving money around across international borders. And essentially now, you cannot move money into Russia without there being a million problems, which has le led to Russia getting kicked off of most web platforms. I just saw today that OnlyFans and Twitch shut down all content creators from Russia. So whether you're streaming your titties on OnlyFans or on Twitch, you're no longer making money from that if you're in Russia. Um, on top of this, that change with SWIFT is expected to, in one go, knock 5% off of Russia's GDP. So 1 20th of the products of their country is gone now because they're going to be kicked out of SWIFT. Um, in addition, the U.S. has been pretty strong and out front on this. Biden authorized $350 million in military aid, including Javelin anti-tank missiles, uh, but they did not confirm or deny whether Stinger missiles were in the shipment. I can only hope that they are, and they're trying to keep it cool to avoid pissing off Russia more. Um, the U.S. has put direct sanctions on Putin and is working in concert with allies. And this brings me to, because Biden had a press conference, and I initially thought it was pretty weak. Uh, he was kind of playing it close to the belt, not talking too much about what they were doing. Now I see that it was just united and diplomatic. Biden refused to comment on a couple of things, mainly sanctions on Putin directly and kicking them off swift, because he was still trying to get European allies on board at that point. Uh, so that's where it's like, I, like I said, I initially was like, wow, this is some weak sanctions. I think now that 
it's just it speaks to Biden's strengths, which is getting the world united and being such a like moderate humdrum guy that when he takes a position, it becomes moderate and humdrum. So U.S. has also put tech export bans on Russia so that they can't get the materials they need for modern technology. That means that critical stuff like semiconductors won't be sold to them. And a lot of other countries have taken this step, which is already giving going to give Russia tons and tons of problems producing the weapons that they need. And just the general technology is like if you don't have semiconductors, you can't have a smartphone industry. It's hard to have a car industry like it's diff- it becomes very difficult to produce things if you are cut off from advanced hardware. There's also been, from the United States and from most of its allies, extensive sanctions against oligarchs and their families, which is a common way for these oligarchs to evade these sanctions. It's like, oh, I don't own 10,000 houses in the United Kingdom. My daughter does. But now there's sanctions against both the oligarchs and their families. Japan has halted the export of all military-use goods to Russia, so they're taking things very seriously. There have been major sanctions on Russian banks, freezing billions of dollars in assets around the world. And this is what I like, is like, this is what U.S. leadership can mean. Again, not that they magically did all this, because certainly Zelensky has been on the phone day in and day out with all these people, like haranguing them into supporting him. But this is what I can appreciate about U.S. leadership. When we take a role in the front, but not a role taking all the credit. If Biden was out there like, I'm personally making this happen, I'm the genius that put this all together, that would be counterproductive. Instead, he's in the background, talking to allies, making sure that everyone is on the same page. Because just having like 80 countries or however many we've got on the same page is a monumental task, but this is how you actually influence another country. This is where, like, Trump's trade war was moronic. If rather than, like, going off like Don Quixote, tipping at windmills all on his own, riding a donkey, he had gone and got backup, we could have actually done some damage. Like, if he had worked with our allies, if we had come to China with a united bloc, that could have actually had an impact instead of just getting into a fight and injuring yourself as much as them. That's what I appreciate about the U.S.'s role in this. It's been a role coordinating allies so that these political attacks can have true bite. And the U.S. has not been alone in really like taking a strong stance supporting Ukraine. One of the countries that I've been very impressed by is the German government, which initially was very, very timid about doing anything to challenge Russia because Germany buys a lot of Russian fuel. But man, Germany has come come around from their initial supplies to Ukraine being 5,000 helmets, which, Jesus, guys, you might as well have sent them, I don't know, boxes to pack up their stuff and move out of Ukraine in. Like, helmets is pretty embarrassing. But now, Germany is sending 1,000 anti-tank weapons and 500 Stinger surface-to-air missiles as soon as possible, which is a significant change for the country, and to be commended, I like, Germany, especially under Schultz, um, this new chancellor just came in, he's fresh on the job, probably doesn't want to cause any international incidents right off the bat, but this is, this is a strong stance providing lethal aid to Ukraine so that they can defend their country. And Germany hasn't been alone. One of the other countries that I've been pretty impressed with is Turkey, which has banned Russian warships from crossing through the Dardanelles, so they've, they've closed the strait to Russia. Um, they've also been shell- selling Ukraine TB2 drones, which, if you go back to my program on the drone wars, uh, was super important in the Armenia-Azerbaijan war. Um, these Ukraine, these TB2s, uh, I've already seen a video of them blowing up a Russian vehicle in the middle of a convoy, which is super important because, like, the Russians have been traveling everywhere in these big garbage convoys barely defended from the air. If Ukraine can get a couple more of these TB2s, they're going to make it very, very dangerous to cross Ukraine. 
lots of other countries have been helping out too. Sweden just announced that they would deliver 5,000 anti-armor rocket launchers, 5,000 body armor kits, 5,000 helmets, and 135,000 field rations to the Ukrainian armed forces. And support is coming in from places that I never expected. In the capital of Iran, Tehran, there have been chants of death to Putin and viva peace in front of the Ukrainian embassy. So even the Iranians are getting in on this. They are not a fan of this Russian invasion. Another move that I am hugely supportive of was announced the other day by the Ministry of Defense of Latvia who just got out of a meeting on how to end this Russian aggression. The West announced that every Russian soldier who surrenders to Ukraine will receive asylum in the West. Like, I think this is a great idea. Like, the... It just makes sense. If you're a Russian soldier and you you don't want to do this, why are you here? Like, you were drafted. This is not your fight. It'd be better to just drop your weapon and run off. But do you want to face Putin? Like, do you want to be the one on the murdery end of an authoritarian asshole? But drop your weapon, cross the lines, move to Germany, move to France. That's a pretty good deal. It's like it's rough for any soldier with a family because they they probably still wouldn't accept this. But any single unattached man who's not really interested in this whole fighting thing... Peace out across the lines and move to, like, the sunny coast of Croatia. Like, there are nice places to go in Europe that are not Russia. That's a pretty, that's a pretty sweet deal. Another big announcement came from Ursula von der Leyen of the EU leadership. Uh, that They announced that they're stepping up support for Ukraine and that the EU will finance the purchase and delivery of weapons and equipment to counter the country under attack, and they're also strengthening their sanctions against the Kremlin. Poland has also taken a leading role in this, offering offering sanctuary for Ukrainian civilians fleeing the war, and supporting Ukraine's express path to European Union membership, which is another move that, well, it wouldn't, do anything magically automatically, it would make it much easier for the European Union to intervene and provide weapons and money. Meanwhile, in New York, Russia vetoed a draft UN Security Council resolution that would have deplored Moscow's invasion. Because they're a member of the Security Council, they have a veto over these things. Of course, they just vetoed the punishment for themselves. But in that vote, China did not vote in favor of Russia. They abstained, which Western countries have taken as proof of Russia's international isolation. Even countries that are on the shit list of the world are like, "Mm, don't let me in with those guys. Those guys are dicks. Some other strong moves from the European Union have been the, the move to ban all Russian airlines from EU airspace. Uh, So airlines of EU nations over Russian airspace called back all of their planes, fearing an immediate Russian response. And then on the economic front is one of the areas that Russia has just been getting absolutely ass-blasted. The Russian credit rating has been downgraded to junk, meaning financial institutions don't think they will be able to pay their debt, which means no one should loan them money unless it's at eye-poppingly large interest rates. Just to put this in perspective of their currency, the Russian ruble has tanked in value. It is now worth just around 1.2 pennies. Meanwhile, the currency Robux, the money in the children's video game Roblox, is worth around 1.25 pennies. Which means right now the Robux is doing better than the ruble. Which just makes sense, because at least Roblox is still connected to the global economy. I'd rather have a pocket full of Robux than a pocket full of rubles right now. And apparently, uh, many Russian people have felt the same way, because from a video taken at, I believe, 5 a.m. last night, there were people lined up around the block in Moscow at ATMs, which could mean that a run on the banks is starting as people look to pull their cash out of these institutions before they fail. If people lose faith in the system and a run on the bank starts, those withdrawing money will ensure that these banks eventually do fall apart. 
But what's much more likely is that the authoritarian government intervenes and tries to prevent a bank run, tries to just force people to not withdraw money, which is not a great way to inspire confidence in a monetary system. So all of this military failure and diplomatic isolation brings us to one key truth about this conflict, and that is that Ukraine doesn't need to win, they just need to hold out until support comes. As I mentioned, lots of countries are shipping weapons as we speak, and as long as Ukraine can hold out for a little bit longer, equipment is going to start coming. I'm confident that volunteers are going to start coming. They've started setting up. Uh, you can go show up at any Ukrainian embassy, and if you care about this fight, they'll put a gun in your hand and a plane ticket in your pocket to come shoot at some Russians. And as long as Ukraine can survive, as long as they can stabilize their front lines, as long as they can keep this fight going, Russia does not have an infinite amount of time to conduct this war. Four days was all that they planned for. If this goes 10 days, they're going to start running out of supplies. If this goes a month, they're going to start running out of money. They're going to start running out of food. They're going to start running out of everything. If this war continues that's how Ukraine will eventually come out of this victorious. And so they just need to hold out. They just need to make it a little bit longer for more support to come, for more to get there. And that is what has had me just so impressed with these heroes of the Ukrainian defense, these people that have traded like lives and money and supplies for just time, for time for the government to get its shit together, for time for the military to organize, for time for allies to get supplies moving in. And so I'd just like to specifically call out a couple of people that I've noticed that are that I would consider the heroes of the Ukrainian defense. And the first one, obviously, has just got to be President Zelensky. Zelensky has been showing leadership to rival a warrior king of old. This guy is like George Washington or Julius Caesar. He is on the battlefield. He is keeping strong. He is keeping morale up. He is proving with his videos every day that Ukraine is not bowed, not bent, not broken. And those videos have to be giving people hope, have to be showing people that like, hey, Ukraine is here to stay. We're not going to roll over. We're not going to run. Zelensky has now turned down two separate offers to get him out of the country. Uh, the U.S. offered him transport, saying that he was target number one of the Russians and that they were probably going to kill him if they found him. And Zelensky replied, look, I need ammunition, not a ride. Which, oh man, like, that's, um, that's like a title of a book right there. That's, a, that's the title of a memoir. And then the European Union also offered asylum to Zelensky, and he said, no, the fight is here. Which, man, the balls on this guy. Like, frickin' Ted Cruz fled to Cancun when the weather dropped below 32 degrees, and Zelensky isn't fleeing despite his country being under invasion, and the city that he's in being the target for attack. So I'm I'm just infinitely impressed by this guy. People have been posting videos all day. Like, this guy is an actor. He posted silly videos of himself dancing in high heels and dresses as, like, a parody of a music video. There's a clip going around of him on, like, Ukrainian dancing with the stars, wearing, like, a silly fake mustache. This guy is an actor. He's not, he's not a general, he's not a military man. This guy is an actor, and he's showing more balls than the entire Russian army combined. Like, there, there's no hiding in a bunker a thousand miles from the fight for this guy. He is there. And as I mentioned, U.S. intelligence has Zelensky as one of the prime targets for Russia, with his family as target number two. So I can only hope that Zelensky's family has been evacuated from Ukraine, which hopefully will give him the peace of mind to do what needs to be done in the coming days. Our next hero of the Ukrainian defense is the mayor of Kiev, who's also on the ground fighting. Um, so Vitaly Kilchitsko, 
and his brother, uh, Vladimir Kachitsko, are both heavyweight champion wrestlers, I believe. And they've been, uh, Kachitsko has been mayor of Kiev since 2014. And both men are wealthy. They have millions of dollars. They could have been on the first private jet out of here weeks ago. But no, Vitaly Kachitsko, the mayor of Kiev and professional boxer, is mounted up with a machine gun on a roof in Kiev to defend his town, along with his brother. Like, like I said, these people could have left, uh, they could have planned the defense from a, a nice safe place far from the fighting, but they're out front defending their country, defending democracy, defending their freedoms against Russian tyranny. And that is impressive. That is hero status. So down from the leaders, there are a couple of more people that I have to mention as just true heroes of Ukraine. And one of them is Vitaly Volodymyrich Skakukin, who was a battalion engineer fighting in Kiev. And he voluntarily undertook a mission to mine out a supporting structure on a bridge near Kiev before Russian forces could cross it. Before, uh, before Shukin could retreat after having laid the explosives, the Russian tanks arrived, just giving him enough time to call his unit and tell them that he didn't have time to flee the blast radius, and then he detonated the explosives, blowing up the bridge and himself to prevent the Russian tanks from crossing and attacking Kiev. The Ukrainian army reported that the, this explosion was immediate and thwarted Russian efforts to mobilize their tank column over the bridge. I just hope that Ukraine can win this war so that when they rebuild this bridge, it's named after Vitaly Vlodimirich Skukukin. And this is the kind of thing that the Russians will never do. This is their disadvantage in this war. They could have all the tanks and planes and missiles in the world, but you show me the Russian soldier willing to blow themselves up just to slow down the Ukrainians for a bit. That's bravery. That's being willing to fight for your country right there. And that's what happens when you put a country's back against the wall. These people are willing to fight. And today, Skakukin proved his bravery. Another hero of the Ukrainian defense is actually, I believe, 13 people from the Snake Island garrison. And now you probably saw this online because it's been popping all over the place. Um, according to a purported audio exchange, a Russian warship approaches Snake Island, a tiny little rock out in the water, only like just one little command post and big flat island other than that. But a very important island for Ukrainian territorial claims. And the Russian officer says, this is a military warship. This is a Russian military warship. I suggest you lay down your weapons and surrender to avoid bloodshed and needless casualties. Otherwise, you will be bombed. From the audio, you can hear the, the Ukrainian soldiers talking among themselves, agreeing, this is it. And they must have already discussed beforehand what they planned to do when this happened. And then a Ukrainian soldier responds, Russian warship, go fuck yourself. In the resulting attack by the Russian warship on the post, all 13 U Ukrainian defenders were killed on Thursday, as confirmed by President Vladimir Zelensky. He, he said that, quote, all border guards died heroically but did not give up. They will be awarded the title of Hero of Ukraine posthumously. Meanwhile, the official Russian account of the incident differs dramatically. Moscow says of the 82 soldiers on the island, all of them surrendered voluntarily and made no mention of carrying out strikes or inflicting casualties. A separate recording posted on TikTok shows what appears to be a border guard in a helmet and balclava on the atoll, also known as Zemini Island or Snake Island, cursing after coming under fire. His profile lists him as a 23-year-old from Odessa. These aren't hardened soldiers. They, are, they weren't even part of the army. They, they were border guards. And yet, despite all odds, even despite overwhelming firepower, they chose to die defending their country rather than give up to the Russians. And if that's just not the picture of this whole situation, then I don't know what is. 
couple more honorable mentions. I, I've seen another pic floating around of this married couple in Ukraine. Just two, two young people in their early 20s, first going through a traditional wedding because they, they'd had their wedding planned, but now they don't know when those plans could happen or whether they'll be alive to see them happen at all. So they got a traditional wedding, looking straight out of the movie Midsommar with like the big flower dresses and all, like looking like they are ready to go sing and dance in a field of flowers. But the next picture looks straight out of Red Dawn, as these two are wearing their winter gear, carrying their AK-47s. Uh, apparently they went straight from the wedding off to volunteer for the Ukrainian army. And now they're stationed in Kiev looking to defend their country against the Russians. Hats off to you two. And the last heroes I have to mention is just the citizens of Kiev, uh, who I've seen on these videos taking up arms despite being old men or young people. I've seen old men, hands covered in styrofoam, filling Molotovs in the street. I've seen lines around the block for the crates of guns piled in the, in the city center, and civilian volunteers here to pick up a gun to defend their country. CBS News talked to one man who I noticed, uh, Grigory, 44, a map maker by trade, spoke to CBS News outside a military recruitment center for volunteers in Kiev. This is the kind of people who are showing up to defend Kiev. We're not talking warriors. We're talking Gregory, the 44-year-old map maker. These are the people who are going to defend the city, and these are the people who deserve the credit if and when they manage to hold back this Russian invasion. I, I just have nothing but respect for the Ukrainians here. Uh, they are showing more bravery in one little thing freaking toe than half these world leaders have in the build-up to this attack. I just hope that they get the support they need and that they can keep the fight going. This has been my update on Ukraine. Um, I, I've got a couple more like little random things that I found that uh, don't really make any sense in any good category, but let's just bust through them. First off, uh, I'm sure Reddit will hate me for this because they're super horny for nuclear power, but let's pile this on for reasons that I don't like nuclear power. Um, Russian troops were seen 30 kilometers from Energodar, the Zaporofi nuclear power plant uh, from the offensive in the south. And Ukraine has reported this morning damage to two nuclear facilities to the International Atomic Energy Agency. So th this is my problem with nuclear power, because uh, people love to argue that it's safe. Like, come on, technology has improved since Chernobyl or Fukushima. But who cares how good the technology is? The world is a dangerous, crazy, chaotic place. Sometimes there are wars, sometimes there are natural disasters. And in any event where society isn't perfectly running... Nuclear power plants become massively, massively dangerous. People always say, it's like, oh, well, coal power plants kill people every year with the pollution. Yeah, but if a coal power plant is just left alone for a week or two, or is bombed, it isn't going to destroy the world. That's my problem with nuclear power plants. That's my problem with radiation. It's like, oh, if you manage this wrong, if you blow this up, you will poison the land for a thousand years. It's like, we're playing with fire, guys. Color me not a supporter of nuclear power. Come on. We, ready? You know the nuclear power I like? Solar panels. Keep the nuclear explosion in space far, far away. We'll just absorb it with our panels. Problem solved. Um, and then the other, in just various unsorted stuff, is um, if you have listened to what is apparently my best podcast so far, uh, The Warlord of Chechnya, on uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, the, the guy who is currently in charge of Chechnya. Uh, good old Kadyrov is back in the news because of a couple of things. First off, because his Instagram account got blocked. Uh, I don't know if you remember from that episode. This guy loves him some Instagram, always posting shit of him and his, like, new fucking clothes. 
Um, and <laughs> there was another video of him that uh, people were bashing on him because he gave a big speech of like, we're sending in the Chechens, we're coming to Ukraine, we're going to get him. Uh, but he did it while wearing $1,500 boots, which people were doing the math on what that is in rubles and a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot in rubles. He's he, he spent like the GDP of Chechnya on these like fancy military boots he's wearing. And they're pretty ugly boots, bro. Not 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 attractive boots. Um, but good old Katarov um, boasted that Chechen units had so far suffered no losses and said Russian forces could easily take large Ukrainian cities, including Kiev. But their task was to avoid loss of life. To which I say, it's like, good luck, bro. You're like, pull the gloves off. See if that helps you. I'm not betting it will. Um, and then a short video published by the state-backed Russian news channel RT uh, from Friday showed thousands of Chechen fighters gathered in the main square of Grozny in a show of readiness to fight in Ukraine. So it looks like uh, these Chechen troops were are preparing to be deployed and are now... Um, in either engaged or preparing to engage in Ukraine. Katarov's advice to Zelensky is, quote, to apologize to the Russian president to save Kiev. I don't think that's going to happen. If uh, if old Poot-Poot is holding out for an apology, um, he might be waiting a while. That's all I'm going to say. So, uh, yeah, that's our update on old Katarov and nuclear power. The just random stuff going on in Ukraine. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Uh, I'm Ed. This is Current History. And um, toss us a like on Instagram or uh, give us a follow and get updates. And I'll see if I can make a video out of this one. There's a lot of wacky video here to show. Sweet. Peace. <laughs>